0: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
1: As Byron once said, mo' money,
2: mo' quandaries. Niche.
3: You mean
1: Nietzsche?
2: It's actually pronounced Niche.
1: I'm Greta
0: Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita, and this is the At Podcast. This week, an interview with Sharon Creech, who I have to say wrote some of the books that totally rocked my world when I was about eight years old, and has a new book out, *The Boy on the Porch*. And then a look at
1: some fall music with our playlist guru Lauren Schulgen. So, Trisha, how excited were you last
0: week with this Doctor Who news? Oh man. New Doctor Who episodes that we thought had been lost to history have been found. They were just on a shelf in a TV station in Nigeria. No one knew they were there labeled Doctor Who with masking tape. And by the way, the person doing the wiping of the masking tape is a guy named Philip Morris who calls himself the Indiana Jones of film restoration and preservation. (laughs) I would like to get to a point someday where I can call myself the Indiana Jones of something it could be like of cupcakes or, I don't know, galoshes, but just of something. Okay, we'll we'll work on that, Trisha.
1: I gotta say, this is one of those stories that I almost felt like was just made up when I first heard about it. It's like, no, you're kidding. This isn't a real thing.
0: You thought it was guerrilla marketing for the 50th anniversary special airing November 23rd worldwide?
1: Wow, I guess maybe I did, Trisha, now that you mention it. <laughs>
0: No, I believe it's real, and there's still almost 100 lost episodes of Doctor Who. This film that they found on a shelf in a TV station in Nigeria, which they then pretty much immediately were able to digitally restore and throw up on iTunes. So you can watch these on iTunes, nerds. Robot yetis, what more could you ask for? There are monsters and villains introduced in these lost episodes that are still in the show because the show has such a great through line. Its writers understand the canon of the whole series so well that these characters pop up over the course of 50 years that's so impressive okay obviously i could talk about doctor who all day but instead of doing that let me just throw to the most amazing 60 seconds on the internet this week which is the new tribute trailer for the day of the doctor the 50th anniversary special of doctor who that will air on november 23rd our
3: future depends on one single moment of one impossible day the day i've been running from all my life
2: The day of the Doctor.
0: Author Sharon Creech stopped by the Nerdette podcast to talk about her new book, The Boy on the Porch, and we couldn't help but talk to her about a lot of her older books as well. I think you'll be able to tell from this interview that Nerdette contributor Lauren Chuljan and I did with Sharon Creech that she is just as lovely as you want her to be if you've read any of her books.
2: Full disclosure, not to overwhelm you, but actually Walk Two Moons is my favorite book of all time. Oh, I'm so glad. (laughs) I'm glad to be talking to you because I think my third grade self would just absolutely die. (laughs) Oh, oh,
3: oh, that's lovely. (laughs)
2: Yeah, Tricia and I were just saying it's kind of funny because obviously we have a lot of questions for you about the new book and old books, but... I also feel like I have a lot to tell you. <laughs> oh, good. Well, tell me. Good. That's so nice to not have to do all the talking. So you tell me. <laughs> <something>. <laughs> Understandably so. Well, first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about the boy on the porch? Where did the idea for the book and for the character of Jacob come from?
3: You know, I woke up several mornings in a row with this phrase in my head: "The boy on the porch." The boy on the porch. And I kept thinking, "What's what's that about?" And but that's usually part of the process is that something starts knocking at the one corner of the brain and I just have to sit down and write to find out what the story is. But I, after I wrote the story, I tried to back up a bit and think, well, what was, what was causing that? Where was that coming from? And I think one of the things was I had read an article maybe in the New Yorker or somewhere about children, Chinese children being left in parks in hopes that they would be adopted by somebody else. And I remember being mortified by that thought that a young child would be just left in a park. And at first I was wondering about who would do that. And then, though, my interest turned to the child. What then for the child? Would it be better where the child ended up or would it be worse? So my focus always goes to the child. And so I think that... Had been working on me, and somehow my thinking about that child landed this little boy on the porch. And in the story of the book, he is on the porch of this couple, John and Marta, who don't have any children. They live out in the country. And I was thinking of it as, you know, maybe 40, 50 years ago. I wanted a time pre Amber Alert, pre, you know, national fear of everything. I wanted it to be in a time with less communication going on. So he lands there on the porch and they don't, he doesn't speak and they don't know where he comes from. And so they have to carry on like that. And for me, what was so interesting about it was, partially, was that on the one hand, every character that you start with begins that way, kind of lands in your lap and you have to follow that character around to figure out what they're about and who they are and what they care about what they fear but it's also sort of like every child who ends up in our lives whether you know they're born to us or we adopt them or we teach them when you first meet them they're this big puzzle you know you don't know who they are or what they think and a lot of times they do not speak and you have to put all your senses toward figuring out what that child is about.
2: I'm glad you brought up the uh, pre-Amber Alert time, because that was actually something I thought of with every kind of offhand conversation that the husband would have with, you know, the sheriff or someone. I mean, that would raise a lot of alarm, right, if some guy was like, so there might be a child, or maybe there isn't. (laughs) Right. (laughs)
3: Right, right. Now it would. When I grew up, I visited our cousins out in the country a lot. And honestly, you know, people just kind of wandered in and out of everybody's lives. And no, there was never any question, you know, who's that kid? I don't know. Probably belongs to somebody (laughs) down the road, you know. And I think that still does exist in some parts of the country. Hard to believe. But, yeah, I was hoping people would be able to turn off that. Current sense that's so loud in our head about, you know, the missing child, the kidnapped child, the abducted child, you know, which is so struck fear into the hearts of every parent in the country. I hope they would be able to put that aside and and go back to, okay, let's strip all that away. What if this happened to you? What if this young boy landed on your porch?
0: You know, we see a lot of literature where. Parents are completely absent, and it's about a child making their way in the world on their own or someone coming of age. And it seems like the adults are always just missing in action in those types of stories. Here's a story that's sort of the opposite, and it was refreshing to read what it must be like from the flip side of that arrangement. You know, the moments when you talk about the husband and wife seeing something in each other that they hadn't seen before in relation to the child and feeling things they didn't know they could feel. What was it like to write from the parents' perspective?
3: You know, initially I was a little worried that I thought, well, I know there are going to be reviewers who say, oh, this is about the adults (laughs) and not about the child. But I had to put that aside because to me it was completely about the child, but seen through the eyes of these adults. So the challenge was to keep that focus back on the child I wanted to show that, you know, there's a little bit of child in John and Marta still. They're trying to remember what it's like to be a child. Anytime you write about any character at whatever age, you go for that internal life. And I think the challenge here was that I couldn't get at the internal life of the child. So I had to try to convey the child and what the child might be thinking and feeling solely through the actions of the adults. So interesting to me was it's now out there in the world and some people are telling me, well, I read this to my third grade class or my fourth grade class. Or and the comments, I was so relieved because the kids are really interested in, in the story even though it's told at the eyes of the adults. And one young girl said that she was so surprised that the adults didn't automatically know how to take care of the child that they didn't know, for instance you know, whether, you know, he should be given more chores or, you know, what, at what age they learn to write. She said, I I thought adults just automatically knew that. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was refreshing to me to see that, yes, of course, the children who read the book are most identifying with the child and what's going to happen with the child, but they're also intrigued by these adults who, it gives them a sort of a different picture of what their parents might be like or Teachers or the other adults in their lives.
2: Oh, they don't know everything. <laughs> you know? Sharon, it must be so cool to hear from actual kids about what they think and and how they perceive what you've written. It
3: is. I mean, that's that's really what ultimately what it's about. I mean, there's that initial fear when the book first comes out. You know, reviewers all over are going to pounce on the book, and you know, they have their own agenda, and some are going to completely get the book, and they come from the, a good-hearted place, and some are going to zero in on something that annoys them and so you have to dismiss all that and wait for it to get in the hands of the children who are the intended audience anyway and when they read and respond you just you just know okay this is why I do what I do and this is what I was put on this earth to do and this is what brings me joy you know to enter a child's life in that way and have this conversation with them even though I don't know them and will never meet them and, and so on. It's, it's just fascinating to me.
2: Well, you might meet them one day via phone because yes. I can tell you that my third-grade <laughs> self would tell you. And I don't remember how I got Walk Two Moons, but I do distinctly remember that my third-grade teacher asked me to ask my mom if it was okay to read it because yeah. I started reading at a really young age. And you tackle a lot of big topics, yeah. both in that book and also in The Boy on the Porch. Is that something you're trying to give younger readers to start opening their eyes to? No, not intentionally. I think it's what interests me. The age of the characters that I write about, I, you know, I'm
3: trying to put myself back at that age and, and little bits remembering you know, the first time I learned about someone close to us who died Or the first time someone was ill or the first time someone left home or, you know, at what age did those things enter my life and what did I think about them and how did that alter my consciousness? You know, I'm not trying to give a lesson to anybody, but it's more what I'm interested in exploring through the eyes of the child.
0: I look at what some of the most popular books in the, the young adult genre are right now, and so many of them are sort of dystopia. It's kids taking on a truly crumbling world. The Hunger Games or divergent, these kinds of stories. What role does a story like that play versus a story like one of yours or of Judy Bloom's where the struggles are more internal? Like you're saying, it's about one family member or learning to deal with relationships just person to person versus right. taking on the whole world at once. Is there... Something to be gained from each? Is there yes,
3: something we're losing? I, I definitely think there's certainly room and need for both. So what appeals to one reader won't appeal to another. And likewise different stages of reading. You know, at some stages you're ready for that more internal reflection. At others, you know, you want the, maybe the more adventurous blood and gore kind of <laughs> thing. Yeah, I remember once about oh, five or ten years ago, somebody asked me why don't you write grittier stories, you know, <laughs> like Hunger Games wasn't out then, but they would have said, like, oh, like Hunger Games, or, you know, real edgy. Why don't you do that? And I said, because it doesn't interest me. There's enough gloom and doom and horror in the news that we're bombarded with every day. Why would I want to spend my every waking moment in that world when I could write about something more good-hearted, you know, and something that gives me happiness and joy. I'm not going to ignore that there are troubles and trauma in the world, but I want the world I write about to be peopled by primarily the good-hearted ones, the tender ones.
2: I think that's why Walk Two Moons was so effective for me as a reader, because it was a world that I wanted to live in. I've read this book a hundred times since the 3rd grade and oh, it's so funny to me and I want to know if you get this all the time because I mean every time I meet someone who's read this book, they always have the same kind of connection to it and and it's kind of like it's always someone who's special in my life already and it's always someone who has just a great aura or energy about them. And they're always like, oh my gosh, I love that book too. It's never like, oh, I read it, it was good. I'm used to it now, but in the beginning it surprised me so much,
3: the intensity of people's reaction. And even today, like grown women, or maybe women about your age who read it when they were young, will come up to me
2: and embrace me and sob. Sharon, <laughs> I I am high. I'm, I got some, some tears that I'm holding back, and I really want to hug you, so that's hilarious. <laughs>
3: you know, when I wrote that book, I was writing a lot. I was still sort of working through the grief of my father dying, and he had, for the last six years of his life, he, he had a stroke, and he was unable to speak for those last six years. Now, imagine, you can see your father, you can touch your father, but he cannot speak to you or understand you. For six long years. It was so traumatic for me, even though I was an adult at the time. After he died, it was like all those pent-up words had to come out in some form, and I think they all, from this very deep emotional well, came out in that book, even though it's about a girl and her mother. I think when we write out of those kinds of deep emotional places, they're going to touch some reader's in that same way, who are able to bring to it their own vulnerable emotional places.
2: One of the scenes that always sticks with me, and whenever I deal with grief or loss of someone, that the night when she's thinking about how she was really happy because she saw a baby animal stand up on its legs and yeah. she shared a moment with it, but then she was kind of mad at herself because she was like, how can I ever be happy without my mother? And, right. I mean, that is exactly how I've felt, and I think a lot of people have felt, and I think you wouldn't have been able to create such an authentic character if you hadn't felt that grief yourself.
3: That's right. That's one of the other beauties of writing, is that when you're writing along and something's going to happen to a character and you reach for that action or that moment or that scene, you don't quite know why or how, but you're instinctively reaching for it. That's why I trust the process. If I just instinctively go for what jumps out at me, it must be jumping out at me because it has some resonance to something in the story already. And so it's later than in subsequent drafts that I can refine that and polish that. Like in The Boy on the Porch, the
0: shoes. <laughs> the shoes. I love the
3: shoes. Uh, so the first shoe just kind of came I don't know. I thought he'd find a little shoe. So I explored that. And then then when he found the second shoe, I thought, oh, okay. I, I was really gripped by that and moved by that and it sort of led toward where that plot was going in that section. And then I thought, well, after he leaves, he would leave something behind. Oh, he would leave those shoes. Well, everyone who's read the book so far comments on those shoes and the emotional impact of those shoes. It brings out all that cute little children. They grow up and you know, they're going to go through so much and they're going to have joy and they're going to have pain and, and then they're going to leave your lives. You know, and so there's all this really heavy stuff wrapped around the innocence of a little shoe. You can never be glib about what's going to end up in the hands of a child. You have affected people just by your words, and you can affect people by your words, and you will affect people by your words. Let's refresh the side that says, you know what? There's also still this really beautiful world, and you can have a part in it, and you can change it, and you can make it what you want, and there's hope, and there's, there's all that without being gooey.
0: Thanks to Sharon Creech for talking with us. And we're going to stick with Lauren Chulgin now for her fall playlist. This is Sweater Music, and you'll probably recognize this first tune by Kings
2: of Leon. So that song was by Kings of Leon. It's called Comeback Story of a Lifetime. Um, I first picked it because, I don't know, there's kind of a warmth to all these songs. They kind of have the the vibe that I might be driving through New Hampshire, you know, during peak foliage season. I don't drink coffee, so I don't subscribe to the pumpkin spice latte thing, but (laughs) uh, you know, like warm drink, driving around, maybe like apple picking, um, you know, all the typical fall things. But anyway, this song is great because I think it definitely has that vibe. Um, But also this album just came out and I'm not, you know, like a huge Kings of Leon person, but they have such an interesting story there. Three of them are brothers and I think one of them is a cousin. And um, they were on Morning Edition recently talking about how they had this huge breakdown. I don't know if you remember that one of the brothers was like on stage, like, I'm going to go throw up and drink a beer and then like never came back. And then they never came back. (laughs) And then so now this is like their resurgence. And I don't know, it's kind of interesting to hear them speak canonly about a meltdown, which, you know, feeds into why I wanted to listen to their new album coming out in the fall. One thing I really love about the selections you've got in this mix is that, you
1: know, like I think fall, it's colder, it's darker, but you kind of stuck with still the lighter kind of warmer side of things and a little bit nostalgic.
2: Yes. Well, it's funny because fall for me, obviously, I mentioned New Hampshire and I now live in Chicago, but fall for me equals New England. And so I think a lot of this nostalgia vibe comes from, you know, missing living there during such a beautiful season change. I didn't want anything to sound too wintery. Don't rush winter No, I could not These never. are fall songs So the next song I want to play for you guys is by Ben Howard. It's called Only Love So uh, take a listen Actually, this whole album and all that they do is kind of has this vibe, you know, the acoustic. Sweater music. Sweater
1: music, indeed. You know, I looked at the video, too, for this one. And it's also really nice, it's just him kind of meandering down empty streets on a bicycle, which I think is also kind of reflective of
2: just sort of that pensive feel. Yeah, I wonder why we associate you know, nostalgia and, and that pensive, like, vibe with fall. I mean, I get, I get why I do it, because fall in New Hampshire, I mean, hello. But I, I think this is kind of a shared thing, right? Like, why does it fall kind of evoke that for us?
1: My theory is that it has to do with the fact that we don't go back to school anymore. And that for so much of our still fairly young lives, there was a thing we did every fall. And it had the same feeling every year. <laughs> And now we don't do that anymore because we're working, ladies, and it's still very confusing for our little brains.
0: Plus, when things start to chill. Maybe there's something baked into us from our agrarian past, too, that we worked really hard all summer long, and then after the harvest, it's like, all right, I'm just going to sit down
2: for a minute and read this book by Candlelight. <laughs> the agrarian past. <laughs> All right, on that note, I want to end with my third selection. And I know you guys have some ones you want to share too. But real quick, I want to talk about my beloved Justin Vernon. So I've been really excited to see other projects that Justin Vernon has come up with. But The Shouting Matches is a kind of like Tom Petty esque band, I would say. <laughs> and the whole album, it's called Grown Ass Man. It's really good. It is not what you think of like ethereal Bon Bear. Like, it's <laughs> not like that. It's. Really nice, upbeat, fun, like I said, kind of Tom Petty rocker-esque, but not too intense. I don't know if I just made up all of that, but that's how (laughs) I feel about it. So here, this is the song, um, Gallop, Mexico. So again, that was Gallum, New Mexico, uh, by the Shouting Matches off the Grown-Ass Man album. Such a good album title. Such a good album title. It's so good, especially for your uh, fall anecdote, Greta. Because we're grown-ass women. Yeah, grown ass <laughs> women with real jobs now. No more back to school. Grown ass <laughs> lady nerds. So hey, this time on my uh, Lauren Children playlist for nerdette, we had two big time contributors, Trisha and Greta. What did you guys want to add? I added Devil Town by Bright Eyes,
0: ah. and this song I first discovered when it was playing on an episode of Friday Night Lights, and that show to me is fall, is
2: autumn. Oh, yeah, I definitely get that vibe from this. That's so interesting because mm-hmm. I never even thought about Halloween when I was putting this together. <laughs> Greta, what was your pick? So I picked
1: Ho Hey" by Lennon and Maisie. And this, I just think, is such a lovely song. I think it partly has to do with the fact that I have recently moved to North Carolina. And this is the genre of music that I am now supposed to embrace. Um, but it's funny, Tricia, that your song was TV related because this song actually is sung by... Two sisters who play the daughters of Raina James in Nashville? Ha!
2: Huh. Oh, you are a country girl now. <laughs> I know, bring it on.
1: just think it's adorable it's kind of a short song like it's just over two minutes and every time I'm like really is it already over like I could probably just listen to this song on repeat and be totally content
2: I love when there are songs when you just wish that there were more of them and just for being, like, two little girls, they're
1: so talented. I'm just really impressed. The way they can harmonize, I feel like you have to be siblings <laughs> to pull
2: that off. It's an internal connection.
1: And their names are Lennon and Maisie Stella. Like, how
2: cool is that? <laughs> <laughs> cool parents. That's what that's Yeah, their about. parents
0: didn't like music at all.
2: <laughs> so I guess in closing, I would just say that I think that next time I'm gonna do a, a fall dance playlist. Oh, dance party! Because you know oh, we've good. covered our we've covered our Thanksgivingy vibe. We've covered our coffee shop vibe. Now I want to get you guys dancing
1: think it's time for homework. Yes, my homework for you is to check out this story that was done by Business Insider. A couple of reporters decided to look at the most popular books set in each state. So it's a pretty cool little map. It's a nice graphic. And it's really interesting to see what book actually does technically represent your state in this sense. So what I'd like for you guys to do is go to our website, nerdatpodcast.com, check out the list, see how you feel about the book that represents your state, and let us know by calling us at 312-600-5638.
0: My homework for everyone this week is to go to nerdatpodcast.com and watch the video of Dolly Parton rapping on The Queen Latifah Show in a giant blonde Afro wig. Oh, God, that's beautiful. This video is just, I don't really want to encourage anyone to watch it and think very hard about it. I just want you to enjoy the sort of absurdity of these two fantastic ladies.
1: And you know what? Also, we would love to get some voicemails about other great lady nerds of history that we should be covering. So if you are one of those history nerds out there, think about folks that we should be talking about for our great lady nerds of history segment. 312-600-5638. We accept all suggestions. Thanks again
0: to Sharon Creech
1: for stopping by. And to Lauren shulgin not only our music guru, but also our fellow
0: book nerd friend. Thanks for listening on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud. We like stars. We do like stars. BJ Lederman did not compose our theme. You're listening to Pottington Bear. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO.